Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are back talking about a Gene Wolfe short story, the first story that was selected by our Patreon supporters, and this feels real good to me. Yeah, I'm real pleased by the selection of this story. It was a nice return to Wolf after Operationaries for me. Yeah, that's exactly how it felt. It felt like we were returning to the Gene Wolf that we all know and love. And of course, our supporters picked out some really great stories for us to talk about. And today, it's The Blue Mouse, which was originally published in the edited volume, The Many Worlds of Science Fiction in 1971. And we're reading it out of the story collection, Castle of Days. And Gene Wolf has this story published under Armed Forces Day. And it fits. It fits that category pretty well. This is a story about combat and combat psychology, and it all takes place in a strange but recognizable place. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about in this story, Glenn, but first, why don't we get to the recap? Yeah, I'm excited about this story, so let's get into it. In an old, tumble-down cottage nestled in winter-gray hills, an old woman treats the 18-year-old Lonnie to cookies and tea. Lonnie is a tall man, well over two meters, and a member of the Peace Force. The old lady is kind to Lonnie, but she is critical of his reason for being in her country. You are but a little lad and not responsible, she says, but if you'd seen the half of all I have, you'd not be here killing our boys. She goes on to ask Lonnie which country he's from. Sector 10, he tells her, south of 9, close to the Great Lakes. Lonnie and his unit are here in the old woman's country to put down the unrest, and we're told that Lonnie has learned to call it the unrest from his orientation lectures. So what we have here is something like a young soldier from, I don't know, Iowa or Ontario maybe, but living in a future in which a world government has replaced nations and states with numbered sectors. Yeah, this story opens beautifully, really keeping the reader off balance. You know immediately that something is wrong, and it takes about two paragraphs to identify the sorts of things that are wrong, but those first two paragraphs are wonderful. We have the old woman feeding this boy cookies, like overfeeding him, and it's almost malicious because the cookies are bad, the tea is weak. And then very quickly, we learn that at least North America is divided into these sectors. And so you just get this sense that there's something very wrong and something has gone very wrong with the world. And Lonnie is 18. He's just a young soldier. Right. And this military force that he's a part of is called the Peace Force. So this is all very much reminded me of Operation Ares, where we have the Peace Guard. And actually, even the story we did right before we got into Operation Ares, which was the, the Packer House method. So this old lady with the T, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of things intersecting here. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, is this going to be another old lady poisoning somebody <laughs> story? Um, but very quickly, I think Wolf moves away from that. And the Peace Guard, we learn also almost immediately is is representative of the UN forces that are occupying one of these sectors. And all of this sets up something that's kind of difficult to put your finger on. Like, what, what is the unrest? What is the nature of the occupation of the peace force? And that's something we're going to try to spend a little time in the discussion dissecting. Well, Lonnie himself doesn't really seem to fully understand what's happening here. And he even asks the old woman why she's being nice to him if she doesn't want his unit there. And she replies that they've been instructed to treat the soldiers with kindness, but to tell them that it's wrong of them to come here to kill them. 
And Lonnie protests. He says he's not a marksman. He's a tech. And that's why he wears a blue uniform and not a green one. But it's all the same to the old woman. Either he's firing the bullets or he's bringing bullets to the soldiers who will fire them or he's helping them stay warm. No matter what it is, he's a cog in the machine that wants to destroy her people. And she goes on to tell Lonnie that her lads only want to be free of the foreign law and the greasy, dark foreigners following the Peace Force's blue rag around the world to suck the blood of others. And this scene ends with her saying, think on it, if you should find such a thing as a conscience about you. Something that really jumped out at me here is the moral equivalence that the old woman places on supporting infantry, they're called marksmen in this story, with actually killing people. And as we're going to find out in this story, there is real kind of psychological work that's done on these soldiers, um, whether they are the tech, the support, or the marksmen, to have them find their place in the machine without equating what they're doing with killing. And that, I mean, this is something I think perhaps you and I may have experienced in the military as well. When you're working in support of a big system whose ultimate job it is, perhaps at the end of the day, to fire rifles, it's very easy to distance yourself from that. But like the old woman suggests to Lonnie, though it's mixed with terrible, like scapegoating racist rhetoric, that when you really sit down and think about it, it is a challenging place morally to be in. And I'm glad you said cog in the machine, because I think that's going to feature into our discussion in a really big way. Yeah, great. You know, and I, I really did take that phrase, I think, from how I felt about very much of our own military experience, which I think is going to be something we're going to be dwelling on when we get into our discussion well, done with his tea and cookies, Lonnie returns to his truck to finish driving to base with a load of winter clothes. And he feels safe enough to switch to the auto driver so that he can use his hallmark voice right to dictate an email to his mother. And voice right here is spelled V-O-I-S-R-I-I-T. And we see in this passage as well that hi there, which he addresses to his mother, is now spelled H-I-I-T-H-A-I-R. And, and these little spelling changes, I guess, help us see that language has evolved and that this is the future. And this is a touch that I really love. Like, this is just a real subtle thing that Wolf is doing. And he is also attaching this strangeness or this uh, evolution, this newness, with a name of a company that we all know. Right. For me, it really demonstrates the possibility that language has become universal, that some form of English has become phoneticized and universal, perhaps only in the West, though we're unsure, and that we see that there's been an attempt to really unite the world under a common language. And, and we get more hints that what the single government, I think, as you and I perhaps both think exists in this world, is doing is using all of the means that it has at its disposal to eradicate nationalism. Yeah, this was a real interesting detail for me that sent me to thinking about where Lonnie is from, what language he might actually be speaking. And I have assumed that he's from around the Great Lakes of North America, but this could be the Great Lakes of North Africa. This might actually be someone who uh, speaks Bantu or Afrikaners or something along those lines. And, and that might be part of why we are seeing this phonetic spelling being used here. Yeah, we'll be dissecting this, I think, in, in detail 
in minutes to come. <laughs> right. Fantastic. One more thing I want to say about this before we leave is just that uh, if our patrons decide that we should read Silhouette, then we're actually going to see this voice right again when we get to Wolf's 1975 stories. So uh, that might be exciting. We'll have to revisit this uh, this bit of technology again. Well, at any rate, Lonnie tells his mother that he's safe, but he is also reflecting on his conversation with the old woman. And he explains to his mother that he believes in what the Peace Force is doing and that now, after this conversation with the old lady, he sees the purpose even more clearly. It's not only whether or not they're going to let the world slip backward into nationalism and war, but... And Lonnie never finishes that sentence for us because his battalion's base has come into view and he needs to resume control from the auto driver. Yeah, that but really stands out. And, and my suspicion is that it's something uh, Kipling-esque, like <laughs> bringing the, the, the light of the West or the, the ra- rational systems or civilization to these places that are resisting it, perhaps even by force. That's my gut on what the end of that sentence is. Yeah, of course, this is a great, effective storytelling, but I yearned for the completion of that sentence as someone who always wants to try to figure out what is going on in Wolf's worlds. Well, the base is an impressive array of military technology, tanks and combat cars, surface-to-air missiles, computer-directed guns, and old-fashioned trenches and barbed wire and minefields. Yet, even with all this technology, there are only a thousand United Nations soldiers to defend this outpost against 50,000 insurgents waiting in the surrounding hills. Lonnie muses about the state of the Peace Force while he unloads his truck, and we learn that the bulk of the force are techs who do not fight, while the remainder of the force are the marksmen who do. We also learn here that recruits are tested to determine if they have the psychological wherewithal to fight, and if they don't, they become the techs. Nonetheless, techs have been sometimes known to trip or strike a passing marksman from behind, and the marksmen are usually too exhausted to protest. Lonnie himself did this once, though he doesn't allow himself to dwell on the episode. And so we can see here that there is some sort of social tension within this, I don't know, caste system that defines the Peace Force. And of course, we're going to get more about this later. Yeah, it really makes up the core of the story. In fact, I think that the only distinction we, we see between two groups of people are really the blue shirts of the techs and the green shirts of the marksmen. It's difficult to say, but I don't think there's anything recognizably other about the enemy in this story. The otherness really lies within the context of the same fighting force, and, and that's a great detail. Uh, we also learn in this section that explicitly the Peace Forces is the United Nations, is the Army of the United Nations, in that the the world's order is still kept via the threat of mutually assured destruction. And, and that's a really interesting detail, given that the United Nations, at least in this story and in Lani's eyes, is perhaps the primary force, powerful force in, in the in the in the world. So it's just really interesting to see that there are still enemies and that order is kept in this hideous way in the the regime that we live under. Um, We get a little more detail about the marksmen, and and you mentioned their exhaustion, but I just want to read this sentence because I love Wolf's description. Lonnie is unloading his truck, and and he sees a marksman, and the marksman is described this way. A marksman in green, matte finished armor with weary eyes like caves moved cautiously aside for him. And we learn that there's some reason here for the marksman to treat 
the text with caution, as you brought up, Lonnie and his friends were engaged in some violent act upon a marksman. But I just love the description of the weariness, weary eyes like caves. These are people with habitual thousand-yard stares, and it just shows the, the level of trauma that this fighting force is living under, and the disdain that is felt for them by even people within the ranks. Right, and we can contrast this mention of marksman being too exhausted to protest and this sort of hollowness in his eyes with the fact that Lonnie has just moments ago been having tea and cookies with a sweet old lady, that there can't be a sharper contrast between these two soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when Lonnie's done unloading his truck, he is summoned by the battalion intelligence officer, a man named Captain Koppel. Captain Koppel is very interested in Lonnie's encounter with this old woman, and it turns out that shortly after Lonnie returned, the insurgents cut an important cable coming into the base and then ambushed the team that was sent out to repair it. Koppel assures Lonnie, of course, that everything is under control. But, you know, just to be safe, he reminds him that Lonnie has a gun mounted on his truck, and Koppel knows that many techs, and and Koppel himself is a tech, many techs think that their special skills make them too valuable to be risked in combat. Koppel tells Lonnie that that simply isn't true, and that Lonnie may have to activate his truck's gun when the need arises. But, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. It's a classic doublespeak, the, the way I think grunts think of intelligence people. You see this a lot in the movie Starship Troopers, uh, where you see um, Johnny Rico split apart from Doogie Hauser or whatever that guy's character's name is in the movie. And I just love the detail of that in this story. We learned something about the enemy in this section as well, and, and that's that the enemy is willing to kill even the text, something like the Geneva Convention, which covers who and who cannot be killed in combat, is off the table here. And these insurgents are not only killing techs who you just discussed are not supposed to be killed in combat, but they're killing even marksmen who surrender. Now, how Koppel knows that anybody surrendered (laughs) is another question. Koppel's rhetoric is full of untrustworthy speech and mannerisms. That's a real interesting observation, Brandon. I guess I'm not sure that killing techs would be violating the Geneva Conventions, because these are uniformed military personnel, even though they are treated as a civilian support force here, or at least we see that Lonnie thinks of them that way. Koppel, who is one of these, is, I think, in this moment reminding him that that's not the case. And I I wonder, I mean, you know, I wonder how the Geneva Conventions really would work in this situation where combatant soldiers and non-combatant soldiers are wearing distinct uniforms. And and this, I think, might be worth getting into it when we get to our discussion. Well, we're about about to get some more important information here as Lonnie protests Koppel's uh, assertion that Lonnie would think that he's too valuable to be risked in combat. And Lonnie says that as far as he can tell, techs don't always have special skills. And he actually uses himself as an example. He says, I drive a truck that can mostly drive itself. The force makes people techs because the tests show that they can't be trusted to fight. But the public would be angry if they were deferred from their military service for that. Yeah, I just want to jump in here because I want to focus on the exact language that Wolf uses about what the tests actually show, because it's easy to slip into that they couldn't be trusted to fight, which is the inference. But the actual language is this. The tests showed that they couldn't trust us in a fight. 
but the public would be angry if we were deferred for that. And already in the story, we've seen examples of techs fighting marksmen, and that marksmen are cautious around techs. There is something very odd going on here about the conditions under which techs are willing to fight. And I think that is really what's being teased out here. And I think Wolf is purposefully leading the reader down a blind alley with language inferences when the language itself gives us clues to what's really going on. Yeah, that's fantastic. And in this conversation, we get the word propaganda used by Lonnie, who says that all of this stuff about techs being specialists is just propaganda so that the techs won't resent the marksmen so much. So all of this really seems to be coming into play here. There's resentment between these sort of two castes within the military system here, the extent to which techs are capable of violence or the circumstances under which they could be motivated to uh, become violent uh, is all really interesting. And even with the propaganda, Lonnie goes on to say to Captain Koppel here, supply sometimes refuses to give things to the marksmen. And Lonnie says that he's even heard of some medics who let a marksman bleed to death. Koppel just is not having any of this, right? He, he doubts that any of those stories are true. But even if they are, the motivation for them was the quite natural superiority felt by men who have difficulty in taking human life. Right. And the inference here, which is the kind of contrary statement, is that the marksmen are people who take life easily. And so it's said in, in terms of its logical negation, the real difference between techs and marksmen. And my question is, uh, that's going to come up in the discussion, really, is who wouldn't have disdain for people who can take life easily? <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's really complicated. There's a real complexity in this system that tries to do away with the complexity by creating simple categories. Right. And I think when we get to the discussion, we're going to want to think about how these marksmen are being othered and treated as less than human in ways that we have seen Wolf do to, with soldiers uh, in with other language or in other with other science fiction tropes, which I think will be very interesting when we get to the end here. When Captain Koppel dismisses Lonnie's assertions here about this tension between Tex and Marksman, Lonnie has a flash of memory of the time that he and some friends attacked that Marksman. It seems to be a memory that is cropping up a lot for him, that he is struggling to keep down, but can't. And under the influence of this memory, he says to Captain Koppel, we can kill. We could kick a helpless man to death. What we can't do. But again, Lonnie doesn't get to finish that thought. And here, Koppel accuses Lonnie of trying for a psycho discharge and orders him to go see the chaplain sometime in the next three days. Yeah, and what happens kind of directly after this scene is we get the objective reinforcement of the truth that Lonnie is speaking to Koppel. He goes and gets chow and is given a better portion than what the chefs, who are also who are also blue shirts, will give marksmen. And here we get just subtle ways in which the techs do hold themselves superior to the marksmen and creates real tension. They have no respect for them. It creates real tension in the ranks. You know, we're also told that the air support is gone because they don't want to risk 
killing anybody on the base. And this is making the Markies, which is, you know, a sobriquet for the marksmen, um, jumpy. So jumpy, in fact, that they're shooting at each other. So here we get a hierarchical system where these this group of people is being looked down upon. They have, you know, belittling nicknames. And they're also dumb enough to take one another's life. And I say that because I want to talk about the kind of lives that the techs are willing to take when we get to the end of the story. And we're about to get into the real action of this story now. At two minutes after midnight, the attack comes. It begins with rockets and mortars. Lonnie hears someone screaming somewhere. The Peace Force artillery fires back and blue flares light up the night sky. Lonnie sprints for a sandbag dugout nearby, already crowded with other techs. No one speaks to each other, and every time an enemy rocket comes whistling down, Lonnie closes his eyes and tenses. This seems to go on for hours, but then a man with a flashlight appears and orders everyone outside. They're needed at the tank park. No one moves until the man says that they're going to shoot the dugout. Outside, these techs cannot handle the sounds and the vibrations of industrial warfare. Indeed, many of the techs simply refuse to abandon the dugout, and a marksman with an automatic rifle fires a long burst through its doorway. Yeah, it's a really dark and chilling scene with the marksman shooting people who are refusing direct orders. It certainly speaks to the kind of tension that has been described in the story. This is kind of the fruit of that tension. I do want to say one thing, and that is that we know the time that the conflict begins because Lonnie hits the dirt beside his cot and breaks his wristwatch. And this clock seems to be pretty symbolic in the story. The time seems to be symbolic. And we also have, for the duration of the story, a real playing with time. I think Wolf is saying something about how there is no real time in combat, that that things that take a very short period of time from an objective point of view seem to drag on for hours. And things that maybe take a lot of time seem to take up no time in the subjective mind of the soldier. Yeah, fantastic. I have some real thoughts about what is going on here with time and with this this watch that has stopped. The entrance to the tank park has been accidentally blocked by a combat car that was stuck in the mud. And without the tanks, the battalion doesn't stand a chance against these insurgents. And so Lonnie and his tech comrades need to find a way to get the stuck car out of the way, and that's why they've been brought here. The techs try a combination of technical solutions, such as sucking away the mud, removing parts from the car to lighten it, but it doesn't matter because an enemy rocket crashes into the area where they are working. When Lonnie gets back up, half deaf and a roaring in his ears, he sees that he is not the only survivor but he also sees that many of his comrades are dead, and some of them are grotesquely dismembered. What we see in this section is that the techs and marksmen are all working towards a common goal. Um, The techs are doing this under the threat of friendly fire, basically, from the marksmen. Well, the marksmen are doing this with a sense of the larger picture of being overrun by the insurgency. And this is another example of the real lack of camaraderie that exists in the ranks here. In the in the army training that I received, it's mission first, and everybody is working towards the same mission. And so you just complete the mission, and if people aren't completing the mission, you try to motivate them to complete it. Um, but you don't have time to kill people who on your side who aren't trying to complete the mission. And this 
picture of the common goal that is still tearing apart the blue shirts and green shirts in this story is really heartbreaking for me to see in terms of what should be a, a unified fighting force. Right. Brandon, you and I were essentially techs. That's what we, that's what we would have fallen into in the, in the, if we had been in this peace force. But we always knew that we were infantry before we were anything else. And we always had to train for that. And that that was the, the most important thing that we could be. The other jobs we were doing were secondary. And I think I was constantly reminded that at any moment I could be sent to be an infantryman. Right. And what's interesting here is that the techs in a combat zone don't carry weapons. This is crazy to me. And it really demonstrates what's going on in this world, the kind of picture Wolf is painting. Yeah, and that's about to really matter here. Uh, a marksman lieutenant orders the surviving techs to get back to work, and, and some of them do, but others stand there staring. Uh, two of them even try to help the wounded, but some others slink away from this situation. They walk backwards, looking for places to hide. And the marksman with the automatic rifle tries to stop these techs from running away, but they overrun him, and they take his rifle, and they run off with it. The lieutenant who's here begins shooting uh, with a, a pistol, and Lonnie finds himself running, even though it is dangerous to run because he's going to be shot. But he's not really in control of his responses here, and even as he thinks that he shouldn't run, he's actually left the tank park far behind. He has gotten out of the situation before his cognitive faculties even come back to him. As Lonnie is running, something very swift passes close to his head, and he gets down. As he lies on the ground, his mind races, and he even thinks that he is dead and he has a vision of his own corpse. Lonnie comes out of it and, and sees a trench not far away. That's right, and this is really a section of, of beautiful and bewildering prose by Wolf, trying to capture the proximity of death in the battlefield for this young man. First, he realizes that the, the bullet doesn't make the sound he thinks it's going to make, the bullet that would strike him dead. And it's possible in this section that he's, he's been grazed by a bullet, or at least his, his clothes have been shot. But when he hits the ground after the bullet passes nearby his head, Wolf describes this. He says, he thought of the bullet sound as he lay in the oozing mud, and it came to him that the brief sound had in fact been hours of exposition packed into a millisecond. Love that line. I love that description. It is, I think, confusing and confounding, but it speaks to what Wolf is trying to do here with time as a theme in the second half of the story. Yeah, these descriptions of what Lonnie is going through are some of the best combat writing I think that I've ever read. We're going to get some more of it coming up here, but I'm excited to just talk about that a little bit in the discussion as well. When Lonnie comes out of this, I guess, out-of-body experience here, when, when time resumes for him, he sees a trench not far away. At the trench, he steps on a human hand, and the hand jerks away. When Lonnie crouches down, he hears the bubbling of a chest wound. Lonnie gropes for the wound, but finds only a strap. It's a flamethrower, the wounded man tries to whisper. Lonnie gets the strap off, and he uses his aid kit to apply a self-adhesive dressing. And the bubbling stops, and now the man can breathe and speak. And, of course, this man is one of the enemy. He's one of the insurgents. One thing that I want to point out here is that there is no way 
for Lonnie to identify this man as the enemy until the man reveals himself to be the enemy. This is another case where the enemy isn't even really the other in this story. It's fascinating. Right. We only realize that he's one of the enemy when he says, we have you. Too many of yours won't fight. And Lonnie replies that the ratio is actually about the same on both sides. But in the Peace Force, at least, they know who won't fight ahead of time. Right. That's an absurd claim because they're still outnumbered like 5,000 to 1 here. Like It's a crazy out, outnumbered situation. So even if the ratio is the same, the sheer force of the insurgency here would overrun them almost no matter what. Right. Well, this line isn't about Lonnie defending the fighting capability of his unit. He's defending his identity, right? He's offended that this insurgent thinks that their way of doing things is dumb and questions this whole sort of psychological examination. Um, And in fact, the insurgent is incredulous about this. But Lonnie speaks actually about his own experience with that psychological examination. And And he says that the whole time he was being subjected to the holographic projections and everything else, he was thinking about his mice, And he was wondering whether his mother would take care of them while he was gone. And he was really quite worried about these mice. Lonnie puts the man down now and runs his fingers over the flamethrower while he continues to talk about the mice. He hasn't thought about mice in a long time. But now he thinks he'd like to raise mice again. But only if he can make it back home. And he says two things here about mice I think that are really interesting. One, he says that a lot of progress in medicine has come from studying the genetics of mice. And the second thing he says is, if you don't clean their cages, they die. I don't have real clarity about what this means in relation to the story. So it's definitely something we're going to want to talk about. But another thing that's interesting is that he both breeds mice, which is being focused on creating life, creating the life of mice and keeping them well-kept and giving them the right conditions with which they can flourish, at least in terms of biologically speaking. But he also understands the need to sacrifice mice for progress. And there's a real complexity here as well, demonstrated in his thoughts even about mice, that might hint to us that the psychologists got Lonnie wrong. Just in case anyone's forgotten what the name of the story is, it's the blue mouse, right? Lonnie is the mouse in this story. While this conversation has been going on, Lonnie has put the flamethrower on, and now at this point it is strapped to his back. And of course, the man, this enemy insurgent, has not been unaware of the fact that Lonnie has been arming himself while they've been talking. And so the man tries to attack Lonnie with his knife, but Lonnie blocks the feeble effort and then threatens to tear off the man's chest patch if he tries that again, which this was one of the cruelest things I think I've ever seen someone say in in literature. It's as if at this point, a real change has taken place in Lonnie, and he's willing to kill somebody indirectly. He's not quite at the point where he's, he's carrying the rifle and putting someone down, but he knows his power over the life of another person. And it is cruelty. And I think we need a question on on whose side Wolf is on. Wolf, I don't think, is a pacifist. However, there's real darkness in Lonnie's disposition at this point in the story. Yeah, we're about to see him really lean into that. And now that he's armed with the flamethrower, Lonnie doesn't have to wait long before more insurgents rush the base. And 
Lonnie fires the flamethrower and he holds the insurgents back until three of the Peace Force's tanks arrive, which means that the the people he abandoned when he ran have actually carried out their mission. They have freed the tanks from uh, the park. And when these tanks arrive, Lonnie jogs forward with them, spraying gouts of orange flame until his canisters are empty. And Lonnie has transformed into a marksman over the course of this story. Or has he? That's, I think, the real question for me. It's clear that he's willing to kill. But again, I, I question the conditions under which he's killing. He's, I don't think he's killing easily. But there's something that is motivating him to kill at this point, as we saw earlier in the story. You know, is this just his final defense? Is he attacking to survive? Is his life at stake and he knows what he has to do in order to stay alive? And is that opposed to maybe how the marksman might go and take a position? And for me, we're going to get into maybe what is the difference between an abstract or a concrete goal that is worth killing over in terms of military service. Yeah, this is fantastic. Why don't we move straight into our discussion, which I think we've both been really eager to get to in this episode, more so than even usual. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think we're kind of headed into a discussion about the aim of these psychological tests, what they're meant to identify and test for. And I think there are a few things to discuss with this. I think we pointed a lot of this out in the story. First, I just want to say what I think the tests show to open the discussion and then see where it goes from there. So I I really think the tests show, uh, and these are tests to determine who's a blue shirt or a green shirt, a tech or a marksman. Um, No red shirts in this story. Um, But I think the tests show that the techs at least based on Lonnie alone, our only point of view and our only entry into this world of the text, they're likely to show uh, disdain or even hatred for those who kill easily. And again, I stated my evidence for this killing easily early in that it's the opposition. It's the opposite of the claim, logically, that Koppel makes. We're saying the superiority that the texts feel because they are people who find it difficult to kill, which I think means that the marksmen are selected because they're people who find it easy to kill. This disdain, though, goes both ways. The marksmen also have no real respect for the techs because they're of their inability, perhaps, to participate in missions to the level of effectiveness required. Koppel again says that techs will win the war or techs will lose the war. It's support that really creates the conditions for success in this conflict. And, and, and by keeping weapons out of the hands of the techs, I think that this is meant to show, and this is just a gut feeling that I have on the story, but it also speaks to kind of Lonnie's and his friend's attack on the marksmen, that they really keep weapons out of the hands of the techs to avoid friendly fire incidences on base, that the techs are likely to attack or kill marksmen, perhaps because they're groomed to feel disdain for them, though I'm not, I'm not sure exactly why. But the marksmen, who maybe find it easy to kill, can be trained who to kill and when. So those are kind of my thoughts about what these tests are selecting for. Glenn, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, or if you think, you know, why these psychological tests exist in this story. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about what is happening here with the tests. And, and I just want to go back and look at the only detailed information that we get about what these exams are. And I'll just read the passage here. I paraphrased it in the recap. And this is what Lonnie says about the exam. He says, all the time I was answering the questions and looking at the holograph projections and everything. It was kind of in the back of my mind. 
you know, whether my mother would take care of them, right, while I was gone. The, and and he's, this is where he's talking about the mice. But so what we see is that he's answering questions and that there are holographic projections in front of him, but also other things which he just kind of dismisses by calling everything as if the man he's talking to has this shared reference and he doesn't have to describe all of the detail, which is, I think, both great characterization and really brilliant world building on, on Wolf's part. But this... This use of holographic projections here made me think of, of a number of things. And there's also this answering of questions. And some of this is because we're just coming off of reading Operation Ares, where we see people going through brainwashing that is really straight out of a clockwork orange, where they're watching film projections and are being brainwashed. They're being given information uh, while this is happening to them. There's more going on there in Operation Ares, as we've covered. But this made me actually read about the psychological testing with a real cynicism, a real skepticism of wondering, is this testing at all? Or is this actual conditioning that they're going through is one thought that I had. But even if we take, you know, at face value, even if we accept that it is just uh, an exam, what, what it seems then to be measuring, right, what the test is measuring is people's responses, the subject's responses to presumably to, to violent images to see what are their physiological and psychological responses to various types of violent stressors to see if they will do what Lonnie does in the moment here when he's faced with violence, which is to lose his composure, to run away without even actively deciding to do that. Or if you can maintain your active faculties in a situation like that and choose to return fire. What we see Lonnie do here in the test, as you just uh, read, is, is, is psychologically detached from the images he's shown. He's, he's moving himself to a safe place and not engaging with the active violence, as I also suspect it is. And my thoughts are that there is brainwashing going on as well because of the real division between the green shirts and the blue shirts, and that not only are they grouped into these distinct groupings. They're also conditioned to treat one another with mistrust. And the reason why I, you know, I really struggle to understand why that would be would be the case. I think it has something to do with the ability to kill easily. And the disdain that the blue shirts have for people who can kill easily. And I think this accounts for Lonnie's change at the end when he sees the insurgent being willing, even in his last breath with a sucking chest wound to attack Lonnie, who views himself as not being capable of killing anybody. This flips a switch in Lonnie in some way, where he's able then to project the actions of one insurgent onto the many. And this is, you know, also a propaganda technique in war that we can find one reprehensible example of a group and say all are like this. And I think that's all I can say to understand about it. I don't know, Glenn, what your thoughts are about this. Well, I want to say that I think that the disdain that the blues and the greens have for each other here, the techs and the marksmen, and in particular that the techs have for the marksmen, that may be being conditioned here in the exam in some way type of brainwashing. But I actually do think that it is cultural. And I want to go back and, and think about what we know about this fighting force. One, we know that there is a world government that's stated purpose is to end the wars that are the natural result of nationalism. The military force, right, is called the peace force. 
I almost called them the Peace Guard because we've just come off Operation Aries, but they are the Peace right. Force. And so there is this notion that the fundamental mission of the one world government is to bring peace and that that mission is motivated out of a moral belief that war and killing are wrong, that these are morally reprehensible. And we also then know from things Lonnie says to to Captain Koppel that this is a draft system, right? Lonnie talks about uh, the deferment system, and that's that's something that happens in a draft system. So that we know that all of these people are being drafted. This is not a volunteer force. And so what's happening is that people are being randomly called up, or well, not randomly. There is a, there is almost certainly an actual system here, but they are being called up kind of at at will, at large, out of the general population, and that the government has presumably out of some experience decided that it is a good idea to separate people who can return fire even when things are exploding around them and those who can't. Here that language is translated into those who are killers and those who are not. Maybe those who are cowards and those who are not. Obviously, I think the word the word coward never actually appears in the story, but it is clearly the central theme of the story and is what is referred to in, in the title. The mouse imagery is all about cowardice. And so it seems to me that if what is happening is that, that what you have is a government and a military and a world culture that is all about peace and that villainizes killing, whether it's war or murder, but then you actually have to have a military that is fighting people, how can you have both things? How can you have a populace that says killing is bad, but then you turn around and you need killers, and in fact, you're actively looking for killers. So I think that this tension between the cast is really a result of the tension between these two things, this sort of question of which is it? Is killing bad or is killing good? And I think I think that's what is happening here. Yeah, you made a bunch of excellent points there, and I think it really helped me understand what, what is going on in this story. One thing you mentioned that jumped out at me, um, and, and I read a bit of Mark Garamini's work on this story, and he points out that uh, Lonnie's name means like lion-hearted or courageous. And so here we have your classic like lion and the mouse parable perhaps at play in this story, maybe as an extra textual uh, signifier or, or symbol that we're working with in this work. Though to what end, I'm not exactly sure because it just struck <laughs> me. Um, so maybe we should talk about what the function of mice is in this story. I'll just remind our listeners that this imagery of the mice doesn't really come up until the end. And we learn that Lonnie cares for mice. Uh, back home, he was breeding mice. He's a biologist. So presumably that means he's okay dissecting animals and things like that. But as I mentioned, breeding mice and caring for their cage, perhaps knowing what they need to flourish is in contrast in Lonnie's mind with their raw value as objects in the pursuit of scientific progress. And I think this is meant to map onto the psychological testing, or at least Lonnie's psychology in some way. So, Glenn, do you think it's it's simply that Lonnie is uncomfortable killing for abstract goals like taking the hill or putting down an uprising or these weird things that only have symbolic value in war, perhaps to control a population through propaganda, through hollow victories, or that he's okay, he's uncomfortable with that type of killing, but maybe he's okay with killing for to preserve concrete needs. He's, he's okay with self-preservation in the same way that he's okay with 
killing a mouse for the development of medicine or technologies that safe. He's not okay using his gun on the truck for an abstract reason of just killing people and spraying the countryside with bullets who may or may not be enemies, but he's okay picking up a flamethrower and running ahead of tanks, burning people to death while support is coming. So I don't know. Is that, what, what do you think? What do you think about that? Do you think there's something there in the metaphor? I do. There's something I think that's very interesting going on in his psychological testing, which is where we start to get the mice imagery, where we can infer that he's being shown pretty horrific images here and being asked questions about it. And the way that Wolf describes Lonnie's thoughts or turn to thoughts about the mice is that he's withdrawing, uh, that he's becoming detached, I think is actually the, the word that you used, Brandon. But I actually think that it grows naturally out of the images that he's seen. I think that he's seen images of brutality and violence, and his mind associate seeing images of brutality and violence with the creatures on the planet that he feels most responsible for protecting. That's why his mind goes there, is that he sees violence and thinks of the people, the creatures that he wants to protect from violence. And that this transformation that we see happen in Lonnie, where he moves towards the commission of violence, towards uh, using a flamethrower to kill lots of people in this story, is that he suddenly feels like he is protecting people. And so I do think that your use of this, uh, this contrast between kind of an abstract and a concrete reasons for doing violence is what's going on here in the mice imagery, is that what Lonnie needs is to feel that what he's doing is protecting people. That's a wonderful point, and I think that really lines up with the manner in which Lonnie questions the war effort in general or the division between the text and the marksman, how he expresses to Koppel his personal understanding that it's not that texts can't do violence. It's that they will only do it under certain conditions. And perhaps it's the case that the texts at least texts like Lonnie view the marksmen with such disdain and wish to attack them on sight, which is crazy. Though now it just occurs to me that that might serve the function of keeping the marksmen constantly on their feet and constantly in a hyper alert state in a combat zone, which might serve their ability to act really well, which speaks to the potential conditioning of the texts and the marksmen. And that's that would be very odd, but savvy i think on the part yeah i mean i think we're we're gonna end up talking ourselves in circles here about these things but i think that's actually one of the beauties of this story is that it can be read in all of these all of these different ways and i actually i have a counter i want to let you finish your thought brandon but i just want to say i'm going to have a counter argument to my own reading of the mice that i just gave you where i'm going to prove that that's totally wrong and not what the story is about (laughs) well i think i just want to finish up by saying that lonnie is anxious to prove that he's able to do violence to the battalion intelligence officer, but it's only under under certain conditions, and that he is actually questioning the system, and that it's that his freedom to question the system that allows him to break out of the system at the end. And we're probably in a minute or so going to talk about this kind of mechanistic system that rules or perhaps has programmed these soldiers to act in certain ways. Yeah, so I'll go, I'll go ahead and offer my sort of counter reading, or maybe not counter, but another reading of what's going on here with mice. Because this notion that Lonnie is only activated to be a killer because he is 
acting out of an urge to protect or, or defend is, I think, undermined, if not necessarily contrasted by the fact that we know that he has participated in kicking a marksman to death. It's not clear if that's here in this base or something that happened somewhere else before their deployment, but that doesn't seem to be something that Lonnie is thinking of as an act of self-defense or an act of protection. This seems to, I think, have more to do with this second thing that Lonnie says about mice, which is that if you don't clean their cages, they die. I think this is about Lonnie feeling like a prisoner and this sense of feeling trapped, a feeling like that if I can't get out of this cage, I am going to die, and that that's what leads to the violence, and feeling like because I'm, I am trapped in an organization that's sole purpose is killing, that the thing that is keeping us here is the killers. That could be, or due to the conditioning, which is my new line of argument in this story, um, what is the value of a marksman who can't defend himself against techs? He's very likely to die easily. And so this is the way that the psychologists have designed to keep the cage clean of ineffective marksmen, uh, which is a much darker reading, I think, than the one you present. Yeah, I mean, that is the darkest thing I've ever heard. To kind of envision the, <laughs> the, the Doogie Hauser characters of, of this, this world to, to bring Starship Troopers, the film, back into it. Right. Uh, if that they are manipulating this whole system is is horrifying that's the scariest thing i've ever heard that is much scarier than any of the dystopian things we just saw in operation aries yeah but i think it makes sense the title's called the blue mouse and so i think we're meant to associate the people participating in this system as mice and there's a little bit of lani overcoming this of becoming the lion of becoming a killer but the system is still run by people who are primarily interested in 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 running experiments who are the psychologists and the battalion intelligence officer is is maybe one of their members as well so i'm gonna leave it to our great listeners to kind of tease that apart a little bit because it's really just occurring to me now that perhaps this whole story is taking place in a cage with both the green and blue shirts and that this is an experiment not of genetics but of some social cleansing of some kind yeah, no, a lot of progress can be made from studying mice who are trapped in a cage. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I will really look forward to hearing what listeners have to say about this. This is, I think, a pretty beautiful story, but complex. I think we're having a hard time getting at sort of a single reading that I think we can get behind, which is beautiful storytelling, uh, a rich text. But I would love to know where listeners come down on any of these sides we've presented. And I'm sure that they're going to think of sides that we just haven't. Yeah, they'll be able to map their own dark thoughts onto this story. Um, The last bit I really want to talk about, I think we've touched on a lot of the world building elements in this story, and and maybe we don't need to be as explicit about them as as I once thought. So I'd like to really move on to this clock in the story, the clock breaking right as combat begins. We've seen this in other wolf stories, uh, namely in The Changeling, where time is really thrown out of whack by by trauma. And I've compared this to um, Vonnegut's representation of time in Slaughterhouse-Five as well. And I think that that motif is used in this story as well, that, that time breaks down in combat. It completely takes over normal experiences of time. Lonnie is lost in time during this combat. 
But then at the end of the story, and this is kind of a, I don't know, this is a great Wolfian wrench, perhaps he throws into his own imagery. We see that Lonnie looks at the clock, which has been broken this whole time, and he knows that it was broken at two past midnight, and that the time now, two past midnight, represents new meanings and possibilities. Lonnie reads this as a new day. We're seeing this as a total transformation. To complicate things even further, Glenn, <laughs> Mark Aramini points out that the clock may also represent, uh, besides combat, trauma, transformational, personal transformational experiences, the clock may also represent a conflict between the mechanistic system of perhaps fate or fatalism or determinism that Lani is locked into and that he struggles to accept throughout the story in his explanation of the situation he's in with his move to acting out of free will. The clock breaks, the system breaks down, and Lonnie can act freely. So that's a lot I just threw out you, Glenn. But what do you think of all of this? What do you think of this meaning of the clock in the story? Yeah, these are some really interesting reads of it. I quite like this notion of the mechanism breaking down, standing in for the system breaking down, and therefore Lonnie is now free to stop being a mouse or stop being a blue that he can become a marksman. And I think that there is something really beautiful about that idea of what is happening to Lonnie. If we really think about this conversation that he has with the enemy insurgent and, and all of these memories where maybe he's remembering the last time, you know, he's remembering his psychological exam. He's remembering what we're seeming to think of as conditioning and might be remembering back to the last moment where he really felt like he had any actual agency and that the the memory of that returns that to him. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it, and, uh, which I hadn't seen. So I'm glad that you've told me what Mark has, has had to say about that. Something that occurred to me about the clock that I think probably is not right, but then I'll pose anyway, is a question of if time is not happening, is anything else happening, right? If we can't mark the passage of time, are any of the experiences that we're having measurable in any way? And if they're not measurable because time has stopped, then do they really happen? And are we morally culpable for the choices that we've made during that time? That's a great question. My reading of the clock breaking in this story is really closer to the breakdown of objectivity, that that, that ob objectivity has lost its place, that objective reality is absent. And I don't think that absolves anyone in terms of culpability, moral culpability. I think what it does is it shifts the action into purely subjective terms, that we are no longer treated to objectivity, because time is the ultimate representation of objectivity. It's this insane system that we have all globally agreed upon to represent the standard units of growth, of, of uh, passing, that when time breaks down, you are perhaps without an anchor in the world. And I think we see that with Lonnie. Lonnie is in the tent for hours, though it's only minutes, and he's on the ground uh, for a lifetime of exposition in, in what is a millisecond. And I think that the clock breaking down is a way that Wolf is showing us we are in a purely subjective space. And that doesn't mean that the narrative can't be trusted or that the actors aren't culpable. It simply means that in extreme situations like this, objectivity loses its meaning. 
Yeah, I think that's a much better reading than what I had. I think my reading only makes sense if we ignore the part about the new day, and that's extraordinarily significant. And in fact, I think that the idea that what we're seeing is a new day, a new Lani, from the moment that he is startled awake in his cot by enemy rocket fire. And we also get this moment in which time becomes very important with another use of ammunition. When a bullet whizzes by, possibly even grazes Lonnie here, that time for him gets, I don't know, wonky. It gets timey-wimey, if we can borrow the phrase from (laughs) Doctor Who. This particular moment where a head wound or a near head wound, a sort of auditory experience in a stressful situation, reminded me quite a bit, looking ahead, of... Patera Silk's experience on the ball field at the real opening of the Book of the Long Sun, which is treated as a religious awakening. But I think we can see there that Wolf really thinks that this like sensation of something happening in or near your head and affecting your sense of time is a, a language of, of profound transformation for Wolf. I think that's an excellent point. I, I I totally forgot about the moment at the beginning of Book of the Long Sun. I was really recalling the point where Oreb takes over narration and flies above Silk, and it's not clear for several paragraphs that it's not Silk having an out-of-body experience, but but his bird speaking for him. And that's what really struck me is... is still no less profound, but that this meaningful look at the self objectively in a situation where you are forced into pure subjectivity in order to survive, that you don't have time to think of anything other than your own survival. I do want to emphasize Mark's reading here a little bit, which is maybe about a person breaking out of their programming. I think I've talked to myself into a reading of this story that is about psychological conditioning in war. Um, And I want to compare it, especially I think Mark's reading will help us compare this story to Horrors of War, which neither you nor I really read very favorably and we we got some guff for. Um, But for me, uh, this story just works so much better. It has some of the same themes. and, And particularly if we're using Mark's reading, it has the theme of defying one's programming. So I just want to hear if you have any thoughts about the other combat story that we read and why this one might work better for you. Yeah, I have a lot I want to say about that. And maybe I'll, I'll do it on sort of two fronts. I'd, I'd like to address this notion of breaking your programming. But then I want to talk about why I had a much more deep, profound response to this story. I like this story better than Horrors of War is what I'm saying. And I want to talk about why. And I, I think, Brandon, you probably felt the same way. So I gonna, did, yeah. We're going to defend ourselves against our, <laughs> our, our critics, uh, which is which is fun, actually. I'm really grateful for that, that to have that dialogue going on on our forums. Uh, but to get to the programming in war, I wanted to really talk less about breaking programming and more about why people are being programmed or how they're being programmed. And this is where this story is a great parallel to horrors of war, and I think also to things that we saw with the Russians in Operation Ares, where people are not being allowed to be soldiers. They are not the instruments of military violence. That we, as a civil society, cannot allow humans to be the instruments of military violence. We have to other. We have to dehumanize who it is that's pulling the trigger. In the horrors of war, we have synthetically created non-human creatures who are doing that. 
in Operation Ares, we see that the Russians are lobotomizing humans to make them less than human, uh, ostensibly to make them more compliant. But it does also allow people to disregard these soldiers as people. And this in particular, I think, seems to be a real motif in these early wolf stories, the extent to which a civil population actually regards its soldiers as humans. And I do think that that is something that we're seeing here, even in the relationship between Tex and marksmen, is that Tex think that although they are soldiers, they're good people. They're people at all because they aren't killers. And the marksmen, because they are killers, aren't people. This is about dehumanizing and othering the people who do violence, even though in every instance that we have of this in wolf stories, they are doing it on behalf of a civilian government. And I I think Wolf is really very shrewdly pointing to the way that we as Americans run our wars. We are a nation that is constantly at war. We've, in the years since our nation was founded, we have barely not been at war. The number of years where we've not been involved in a war is barely zero. If I ask my students if we're a nation that's constantly at war, they say no, because we hide it. Right. We hide it from everyone. The last time people really were aware of the body count of war or anything like that was Vietnam. And I mean, that just turned out disastrously for the soldiers. The soldiers were the ones that were blamed for the violence and not the government. And it's insane. And and, and they came home and were vilified for not being peaceful when in fact, you know, we're fighting very similar imperial style wars today in the Middle East and all over the world, um, the global war on terror is still very much alive, still very much going on. And it's very much a war of techs. It's a tech war. Well, so let me answer now, Brandon, the sort of set the second question. And really, actually, it was the primary question that you asked in the first place, which is, one, did this story work more for me than the horrors of war did? The answer is yes. And then I think the implied question is why? What was it about this story that really seemed to me this story, The Blue Mouse, was the story I wanted Horrors of War to be. I will say, first and foremost, that I felt that Wolf was at the top of his descriptive game here in describing what combat is like. I think here that he is unreservedly drawing on his own experiences in the Korean War more fruitfully and more openly. Very much in The Horrors of War, he was trying to write about Vietnam, which is a war that he wasn't in. Here, I think he is just shedding terrain from this scenario and is just writing about his own experiences and is writing about them internally, about what it's like to be in your own head when these things are going on. And I think it might actually be fruitful here to just bring some extra textual information into this. And and I want to just share with you, Brandon, and with our listeners, some things that Wolf has had to say about his experiences in the Korean War. Wonderful. And this comes from an interview that Wolf did with Joan Gordon. It's, in fact, the same interview that uh, Mark invoked in our last episode uh, talking about politics. And in fact, it is literally the question right before the one that, <laughs> that, Mark, uh, that Mark read. So this page, it's page 25 of uh, Shadows of the New Sun, is turning out to be very fruitful for us here. And I'm just going to read this uh, verbatim because there, there's no reason not to let the soldier speak about his own experiences here. So Wolf says this, I was in combat for four months or so during the Korean War. I got the combat infantry badge. It was trench fighting, almost like that in World War I. I was shelled a lot, but never bombed or strafed. 
I suppose the main effect the army had on me was to make me see once and for all that regimented systems both do and do not work in the way their designers intended. It's something like doublethink, something like hypnosis. Regimentation succeeds brilliantly when everyone involved wants it to, which is to say it succeeds best where it's needed least, the paratroops, the special forces. Combat showed me that the people who act bravely when there is no special danger are not the people who act bravely when there is. I didn't know that. Everything that Wolf is saying here in this answer to Joan Gordon, that's what this story is about. He's hit everything here. Training, cowardice, and the breakdown of systems, the breakdown of mechanization. Yeah, that's a powerful answer to a question about what your experience in war was like. Another way I think in which it works, the regimentation and, and these systems work and don't work is that they never work on the subjective level, but they always work on the objective level, uh, unless you're overrun by an enemy force or something like that. But subjectively, you're trying to survive, but your training and conditioning has provided guidance for you in the manner in which you should survive <laughs> while obtaining a goal. And I think that... I mean, well, his answer was very powerful. Well, Wolf's answer was very powerful. He's right and he's wrong because regimentation and these systems almost always work unless you've underestimated the enemy. And the horrible calculations that people at the top make, uh, that uh, war gamers make, is, is, is that of collateral damage, is that of what is an acceptable loss of life. And that has never worked for a single soldier who has been in battle and watched his friends die on the subjective level. And that's another reason um, maybe I was getting at with that abstract and concrete goals. It's very difficult to fight uh, for something abstract, but when you want your buddy to go home and see his wife and kids again, or you want yourself to go home, or for any reason that you can think of that it's worthwhile to stay alive, you will fight. And your conditioning will get you to meet the goals that the designers of the war intended. It's, it's a very, very complicated system, and it's a very unpleasant one. And it's one that we all owe our civilization to as well. It's, there's nothing easy about understanding the nature of war. Yeah, that's an excellent observation, Brandon. And, and this has me make a connection that I, I hadn't made before you just said that, which is that one of the things that we see happening in this story is... In Lonnie's letter to his mother, and we should say that there is an entire book of letters that Gene Wolfe wrote home to his mother from the Korean War. Right. Uh, that we're gonna we're gonna cover it at, at some point. We're sort of I think saving that for a, a special occasion. But when Lonnie is writing this letter to his mother, he starts to tell her about how his commitment to the ideology of what this world government is all about has been redoubled since he had cookies and tea with this old lady. But that ultimately, he never thinks about that when he's in combat. The thing he starts to think about when he's in combat is his mice, right? That's that's what he's thinking about. And this really, to me, goes back to what are our own experiences in the army, where we know full well that whatever anyone's motivations for joining the military are, and they're almost always the college money. Right, uh, right. they were for us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but even, even if they are, 
some kind of idealized patriotism or you have convinced yourself that there's some sort of idealized patriotism, that is not why you are killing other people on the battlefield. You are not killing other people on the battlefield because you think freedom is really neat or that democracy is nifty. You're killing other people on the battlefield because you want to protect the people who are next to you, your friends, your buddies, your comrades, the people who who matter most to you in that moment. And I think that that might go back to this reading that I had earlier of Lonnie's need to protect, his instinct to be a defender, a protector, getting activated. And that's in stark contrast to the idealism that he is self-consciously crafting to his mother. Right. And this also speaks to the fact that war is two sides. People are trying to kill you as well. It's not, you're not, there's no mere aggressor in a combat zone. There's no easy way to distinguish, you know, who, who shot the first bullet and, and why you're fighting. The, the point is, once it starts, and I think this is the explicit theme of the second half of the, this story with the clock, all of that reasoning goes out the window. You have to put it aside. You can rationalize later in, in the in, in kind of the, the the horrible nights you're kept awake or the night terrors you get. Rationalization comes after. Objectivity comes after. When you are in the moment, none of this matters. You have signed up to do a job, and you will do it, or you won't. And that's a choice you have to make in the moment. And I think Wolf is absolutely right in saying you have no idea who's going to make that choice and who won't. And I think he's poking fun at the notion of a system that tries to make that choice in advance. Right, and is really poking holes in the idea that some holographic simulation and a bunch of stupid questions could ever possibly simulate what it's actually like to be shelled, to be shot at, to see the dismembered bodies of your friends. Because this, these simulations and these questions aren't emotional. They might, they're sensory. They're not founded on your relationships with other human beings when these things are going on. And ultimately, that's the thing that we all fall back on. Yeah, I think maybe to sum up what we're saying here, apart from the actual content, but to answer the question we started (laughs) with, is that the horrors of war, I think for me and maybe for both of us, really tried to rationalize all of this. And it was maybe Wolf's attempt to detach himself from the rotten subjectivity of the moment. And in this story, as you said, it it's, feels a lot more personal and it feels a lot more real to Wolf's experience. This story is alive for me in a way that Horrors of War isn't. And it has everything to do with Wolf engaging with his own experiences in a way that he was still one or two steps removed from in Horrors of War. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better. That's the that is a, a beautiful summation of why this story works so profoundly. Well, I think on on that note we can end our discussion unless you have anything else you wanted to talk about, Glenn. So I think that's gonna do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the Blue Mouse. I really want one of our listeners to bring a reading of the parable or the fable of the lion and the mouse into this story, given what I think is overt extra textual uh, references to that. Uh, I'd love to hear about anybody's reading of the conditioning of soldiers, of why there is real disdain between the greens and the blue shirts. Um, 
There's a lot to discuss in this story, so please join us. We can all benefit from conversation on this one. Well, next time, we're going to be covering the next story that our patrons have chosen for us, which is Slaves of Silver, a story I'm especially excited about. And this story can be found in the collection Stories from the Old Hotel. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.